Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us today. Lots to get to. As mentioned, the mayor of Vancouver is speaking this half hour. We will bring that to you live. Expected to speak around 12.15 today. That is Vancouver's continued response to COVID-19. We'll see what he has to say. Also coming up on the program, an employment lawyer, Lior Samfuru, is going to join us with any questions about CERB. So if you have questions, email them to me, jill at cknw.com, and I will be able to ask the uh, ask Lior about that. Uh, he is great at breaking it down and uh, trying to help people navigate through some of the confusion that uh, takes place uh, when trying to access that funding. But we start the show today with something you've been hearing on the news, National Takeout Day. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Ian Tostenson, CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, I know it's uh, one of the areas, one of the sectors that is the hardest hit uh, given the pandemic and the closure of businesses. But there seems to be some controversy or some debate over whether or not this is a good idea to try and focus all of the takeout onto one day. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, you know, we could, uh, um, wouldn't it be great to have a lineup uh, and just uh, kind of crash because I think that just shows people's love for restaurants, maybe. I view this as we should be taking out every day. But this is a national initiative, and it's got some cool features to it. There's a concert on Facebook, uh, Kitchen Party Home Edition at 5 p.m. with, uh, I think, Tom Cochran's on there and Barney Dental and a few athletes. So it is a way for the industry to kind of raise attention to itself that takeout and delivery is the only game that they have right now to provide some level of income till we get to the other side of this. But I, you know, I think there's, I do share concerns a little bit that um, uh, it, we could overload the system. But, um, you know, I think that's, that would be kind of in the Canadian style kind of fun. We'll get through that as well, too. But it's, it's an incredibly important uh, awareness issue that the public know that restaurants, a lot of restaurants, are doing takeout and delivery and um, are there to serve them through this um, this crisis. I saw some criticism of it, somebody suggesting that it's forcing restaurants that might otherwise close and then be available or be eligible for more financial help. It's forcing them to stay open and to keep a staff and perhaps keep staff in kitchen areas where physical distancing is very difficult. What do you say to that? Ah, you know, I think... I think the staff that want to work, um, they're, they're doing the, uh, the wage subsidy to 75%. So it's actually uh, helping the business owner another way is bringing back staff or keeping staff working because they're going to need that staff when they start up. So I think there's two sides to that, Jill. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, you know, there's not much right now in the equation for business owners and covering their property taxes and rent. This provides a little income towards those sort of fixed costs. And uh, what we're seeing is that with the CERB funding, so the ability of the $2,000 a month for employees, uh, employees are being very discerning whether they want to work or not. And that's all about safety and being comfortable. So, there's, again, it's in the middle there somewhere. But I think that most restaurant owners uh, want to do this. They want to serve their community. They want to keep their brand vibrant and alive because when they come back, they want to be remembered as that restaurant that was there. Uh, and a lot of restaurants are doing some great stuff in terms of helping, um, you know, first responders and uh, delivering foods to hospital for the workers. So there's another function uh, to all this just by keeping them open, just as opposed to just having, a, you know, tonight takeout night. Mm, definitely. Uh, can restaurants that don't traditionally do takeout or delivery, can they break even doing this? No. 
No, um, especially when there's a couple of, one big factor against it is the high cost of Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes and DoorDash. I mean, they charge the restaurant 25%. And so we're trying to change that because it, there's just, once that happens, there's very little margin left for the restaurant. And now you're starting to see those companies maybe starting to bring their prices down. In California, they legislated the prices, that, that commission down to 15% because they realized that the restaurants were being held hostage. So uh, if we get that out of the way, there is a little bit of margin there, and it does contribute. As I said, you know, better to have those assets performing something in terms of cash to contribute as opposed to just being closed up and their, the bills are mounting with you know, rent and property taxes. So um, they certainly can't break even. Uh, Traditional-style restaurants that you and I would know to go dine in, they won't be able to break even, but it does bring in some cash and employment. And just before I let you go, you mentioned that, and there's been a lot of talk about the the percentages, the high cost that a lot of the delivery companies are charging. So until maybe they reduce that or that changes, would you encourage people, if they can, to pick up the food, even though that means going in? It's tough, right? I know. I just I, I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're downtown and you can go close and just get it and go, uh, for sure. Um, if you're out doing something, you can always just pick it up. Um, but, you know, we certainly would prefer that people keep the distance and stay at home, um, even though that the high cost of commission till you straighten that out, because that isn't the spirit of, you know, of uh, what, you know, the, our uh, chief medical officer wants us to do. But the other cool thing I got to say is that you can now order from your favorite restaurant. You can order alcohol. So your favorite beer, wine and spirits. And we're seeing, you know, a lot of those restaurants emphasizing local products, which is great. So that just kind of keeps people at home even more so. So um, I hope everybody can order in tonight, order some of their favorite liquor, uh, have a party online like the Canadian does at 5 o'clock, and uh, we'll see how we go here. Today, we're announcing more help for more Canadians. This includes topping up the pay of essential workers. At the same time, we'll also be expanding the Canada Emergency Response Benefit to reach people who are earning some income, as well as for seasonal workers who are facing no jobs, and for those who've run out of EI recently. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking earlier this morning. So let's bring in Lior Samfiru, employment lawyer, also a partner at Samfiru to Markin LLP. Lior, thank you so much for being with us again. Good afternoon, Joe. What's your takeaway? Uh, we just heard a little bit from what the Prime Minister announced this morning as far as changes to this benefit. Well, these changes were absolutely required and were something that uh, has been demanded essentially since the, the benefit was first announced. And the big issue, that, or perhaps the biggest issue with the benefit up until now, is that you would have had to have a complete and total uh, elimination of your income in order to qualify. So if you are still working a bit, you, you wouldn't have qualified. And other than that being a, an obvious problem, it also provides a disincentive for anyone to work a bit because then they wouldn't get the benefit. Uh, so that is being addressed by the government, although we don't have all the details. Essentially what they've said is that you now, uh, if, if you're making $1,000 a month or less, you would still qualify for the benefit. Presumably, that means that you will have your salary reduced to $1,000, so we need some more details. But that is certainly welcome news that you can continue earning some income, whether it's by going back to work or if you've had your hours reduced and get the benefit. And the other uh, big change is, is, is in the clip that you've just played, seasonal workers 
individuals that would have expected to enter the job market now in the spring and summer months and cannot do so, uh, rather than say, well, you're left to your own devices, they're going to have some help. And finally, those who have recently gotten off EI and would have expected to find employment but now cannot do so, uh, those individuals will qualify as well. The idea being that there's individuals affected in, in many categories, not just those who are working and stopped working directly, and now they're going to be uh, able to get the benefits. So I think that uh, those are, are terrific changes. Uh, I put the call out for people if they had questions to email me with them. There is uh, no shortage. I'll try to get to as many as I can. And I think you may have kind of answered this one. Uh, this is a listener who wrote, uh, what about people with multiple jobs and have been terminated from only one of the jobs? Would they qualify for CERB? Or is the standard EI the proper uh, option? She says in her case, uh, one half of her monthly income is from one job. She's been temporarily terminated because of COVID, but her other job is secure. So under the, the old rules, you would not have qualified for the CRB because even though you one job, now your income is zero, you're still getting some income from other uh, employment, so you wouldn't have qualified. Well, right now, that's been changed somewhat, that if you're, as a result of this change, if you're making $1,000 a month or less, you would still qualify for the benefit. But it, it still pr- uh, provides a bit of a problem in that if you're making now you know, $1,200 uh, and you were making $5,000 a month, you would not get the benefit. But at least there is a baseline there that allows people to do some work. All right. And that makes sense. And she said she applied for EI, but she was automatically transferred to a CERB and she's already got the $2,000. The one thing that uh, the listeners have to be aware of is that anyone that applies to the CRB actually gets it. That doesn't mean that everyone that applies actually legally qualifies. And if you get the benefit when you shouldn't be getting the benefit, you may have to repay it down the road. So actually getting the money doesn't mean that the money is paid to you. So I do encourage everyone to inform themselves as to whether they actually qualify before they go online and uh, submit their application. Good advice. Uh, This person writes, I had to lay off my employee due to loss of business. What's left, though, will not cover my expenses. Is there any help for small businesses still making income but not enough? Well, the, the same rules apply, at least with respect to the, uh, the CERB, uh, in that if you're a self-employed, or in this case a, a business owner, you, you would still get it if you're making a minimal, I guess, $1,000 level of income. Uh, so you can get that benefit. For small business owners, there's a bit of other relief. There's uh, tax deferrals, uh, both in terms of income tax and GST. There's also business loans of up to $40,000 that are uh, much more easy to obtain and done very quickly for business owners. Uh, but beyond that, the CRB benefit applies to, to individually individuals that are self-employed in the same way as it would apply to regular employees. All right. This person acknowledges, saying their question appears to be somewhat of a first world problem, but says, the company I work for has been designated essential service. They've applied for the work share program. Uh, which I have been unofficially uh, into until the company gets approved. We are only allowed to work 50% of our regular hours, so I've had to use my vacation time to make sure I still get a full paycheck. Can I get reimbursed for any used vacation time while we're waiting to be approved? Uh, The answer, unfortunately, is not, in that an employer can require you to to use vacation, and, and whether you choose or the employer 
uh, chooses to have you use it. Once you've used it, you cannot get reimbursed for it. Uh, and I've had many individuals telling me that my employers telling me I have to take my vacation. Even in those situations, you may not want to do that. You may you want to save it for the holidays to go away with your family. Despite that, if your employer requires that, there's really no choice. The employer does get to make the call and there's no reimbursement. Hmm, interesting. All right. Uh, this person writes, I'm retired. I'm over the age of 70. Last year, I earned more than $7,000. That work has now been canceled because of COVID-17. I collect uh, OAS, CPP, and a provincial pension. The application for uh, CERB doesn't mention pensions. I work part-time to make it easier to pay off a line of credit. Is my pension considered income for the CERB? That's a great question, one that I've been getting quite often over the past uh, couple of weeks. And, and the answer is no, they, it would not count as, as income. So if you were working and now you're not earning, or working and earning income and you've met the $5,000 threshold over the last year, you would qualify for the CERB, the $2,000 a month, even though you have other sources of compensation that you have, in this case, through CPP. So, yes, this person would qualify for the CERB. All right. And that's because, again, he made, he says he made over 7000 So because he's over that threshold? Yeah, over the $5,000, either in 2019 or in the last 12 months, either one, if you have $5,000 or more, you get it, of course, so long as you've had the applicable pay reduction as a result of the virus. All right. This person writes, my question is regarding the fact my employer has cut back my salary by 20% and my work hours by 20%. I'm an office worker in an office of professionals. Do I qualify to apply for the benefits in view of my shorter hours and less pay resulting from the virus? So here's the, the answer to that, that is unless that the, uh, the compensation now is at $1,000 or less because of the reduction, they wouldn't qualify. Obviously, if the reduction now means that they make $1,000 or less a month, they would. But the pay reduction in and of itself does not qualify them to the benefit. One of the things that people who are experiencing a pay reduction should keep in mind is that despite the current economic conditions, an employer does not have an inherent right to reduce pay which may give an employee the right to treat that reduction as a constructive dismissal. Some may choose to do so, some may choose to accept the reduction, but there's actually no automatic inherent right for an employer to reduce an employee's pay. What if they're doing it, and this might be outside the the CERB questions, but what if they're doing that based on the wage subsidy, if they qualify for the 75%? Because some employers are doing that, they're reducing workload by 75% in hours and salaries. So the, the subsidy will allow, of course, uh, employers to, to offset uh, wages and, and to allow employees to get paid uh, 75% of their wages. But if the net effect of what's happening to the employee is that ne- they're now making 75% of their income, regardless of whether that comes directly from the employer or by way of a subsidy, the employee's choice is either to accept that reality, continue working, and hope that at some point things go back to normal and their salary is now at 100%. So that's option one. Or option two is they may be able to treat that reduction as a termination of their employment. We call that a constructive dismissal and pursue their termination entitlement. So regardless of how or, or, or why that, that pay is reduced, an employer doesn't have that inherent right to tell an employee, you're now making less money, even if they're doing it for the right reasons, even if they're not trying to pick on the employee, it's the economic conditions that are dictating it. There's still no inherent right to do that. All right. A couple more questions. We'll try and get these ones in, too. This person writes, I received the first CERB payment through EI. I was also sent a four-digit code to upload my weekly records for EI. My question, do I need to continually upload weekly records through EI to receive the CERB? 
That's a very good question. Man. The way that the CRB worked is if you had applied for EI after March 15th, you're automatically shifted to the CERB. So you're not actually getting EI, you're getting CERB, which means that while you're getting the CERB, you do not need to file reports with EI because, again, you're not getting EI. So you may have processed, been processed through the EI system, but now you're in a different system, the CERB system. And as long as you are in that system, you do not have to file those reports. There's no requirement of these reports uh, with the uh, CRB system, you will resume those reports if at some point you shift back to EI after the CRB runs out. And one more question. My wife worked March, April, May, June 2019, but made less than $5,000. She hasn't worked since. If she did try and get part-time work, her medical conditions would make that difficult. In January, she had a doctor fill out CPP disability, an application form, and send it to government. She hasn't heard anything about the disability payment being approved or not. Can she apply for CERB? Unfortunately, she would not unless the government implements some additional changes that would cover this because she does not meet that $5,000 threshold, even though obviously it's not for lack of wanting, of course, uh, there, was no, there would be no ability to, to get that benefit. But again, this is a, a, a moving and living thing right now. This could well be changed in the coming days, but as things stand right now, Jill, she would not uh, be able to qualify. And this person was wondering, you mentioned this, so the, the threshold is still the $5,000 minimum income, but this person is wondering if business expenses are brought into that factor, saying that the business expenses can drop the income below the threshold. Well, we are talking about gross income ultimately. So, uh, you know, you may have actually, if you're a business owner, you may have paid yourself less than $5,000, but if the, the, your business earned $5,000, regardless of what the net income was, you would qualify. So that's the threshold. The gross income earned, if you're a self-employed individual, earned by you, regardless of how much you're actually able to pay yourself. All right. Uh, very good uh, advice and answers. Uh, Lior, thank you so much for answering everybody's questions today. I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Uh, we'll leave it there for today, though. Thanks again. Thank you. All the best. Well, coming up this half hour, we are expecting to hear from Premier John Horgan. We will bring that to you live when he begins to speak to the province. Right now, though, we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of stay home if you can and the psychology of getting people to stay at home. Azim Sharif is an associate professor of social psychology at UBC and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, happy to do so, Jill. Uh, it's one of those strange things where the message has been given again and again and again. Uh, in some cases, we've seen people not paying attention. We keep hearing from politicians that they're pleased. For the most part, people are. Uh, what is your take on how we're kind of leaving it to the honor system of people staying at home and, and doing what the doctors are telling us? Well, I actually, I've been impressed because it's such a tricky thing to do from a psychological perspective. Humans are pretty hard. Uh, they're pretty bad at, at making risk-based decisions, and they're pretty bad at dealing with counterfactuals. So the idea that you should stay home so that this other thing doesn't happen to somebody's grandma that you'll never meet, that's a tricky thing to do. The fact that people are doing it at all, I think, is pretty impressive. Right, because it's not the message isn't stay at home. I mean, it is to a certain extent stay at home because you could get this virus. But a lot of people are thinking, well, even if I got it or I carried it, um, so what? It's not the, to to keep yourself healthy so much as it's to not to pass it on to other people. That's right. So the the research has shown that that sort of framing works a lot better. People are more persuaded by pro social framing, which gets people to avoid spreading it to other people than they are 
by framing, which is just warning people from getting it themselves. And part of the reason for that is that humans have an optimism bias. So we think that other people are more, much more likely to get the virus than we are. Uh, so spreading it to other people seems like more of a risk than actually spreading it to ourselves. And how do we deal with the idea of, well, well these new rules don't apply to, <clears throat> apply to me. I can go out. I can be careful. These rules are for other people. Well, I think the social norms is very strong there, right? So one of the things that humans are acutely aware of is, is hits to their own reputation. That's a very immediate thing in a way that you can abstractly care about that grandma we talked about before, but you don't really feel it in your bones. Social shaming and social approval is something that you really feel in your bones. And I think those are powerful tools to wield to get people to immediately respond to something like that. So if you're, if you're in a supermarket and you're the only one not wearing a mask, you will feel that. I will feel a sense of social shame uh, that you will respond to quite powerfully. In the same way you have these, um, this cheering that happens at 7 o'clock, which I love. I live downtown, so I hear it all the time. And that's a great way of conveying to people, even though what you're really trying to do there is, is you know, do it for the frontline workers, you're conveying to people what the norms of the society are and rewarding people for being part of that, for, for following those norms makes it very difficult to then go be a hypocrite at 7.30 and be behaviorally irresponsible. Even though I, I, I was thinking about that and thinking, is it similar at all how do people might like something on Facebook or, or like something on social media and, and kind of that term of slacktivism, like you've done your job, oh, I liked it, I've shown my support, but then maybe in every other aspect of your life, you do nothing to support the charity or do and nothing to actually do something, to, to, to make a change in that. Do, is there any possibility that people are doing that at seven o'clock and thinking, okay, I've done my job and aren't thinking about it after that? I think, to, so this is actually an area where there's debate within the literature. It's, it's in this idea of self-signaling, that you're signaling to yourself your own moral stance. Uh, and that can do one of two things. One is that it makes you stick to that moral stance across the various domains of your life better. The other is that it adds this moral licensing thing. You've done your part, so you bought a Prius, so now you can drive as much as you want. Or whatever, you recycled, so now you can drive as much as you want. Something like that. Um, it seems, I think, that the literature seems to be leaning towards the first thing, which is the idea that if you're conveying to yourself that you're somebody who supports these particular norms, you're going to then adhere to them across the other domains a little better. So I think, I think it'd be very hard to survive the hypocrisy of being that person who's banging on their pot at seven o'clock and then at seven fifteen going out and I don't know, licking vegetables or something. <laughs> Let's hope no one's doing that. Um, you talked a little bit about shaming and we've seen that. And we've also heard from a health official saying you don't really know somebody's situation. If you're if you're thinking that you're gonna shame two people who are sitting in a park too close together, you don't know whether they're living together or they're in the same household. Do you think though does shaming does it does it get people kind of wound up about this? Does it work? Well, I think it works in, in some of the subtle ways that we talked about before, about being the only person who's not wearing a mask. I think that it can, it can also provoke some defensiveness uh, in those types of situations where you're talking about. Uh, and that can, yeah, that, that can have negative consequences. But I think that it can be used in ways which, with positive consequences. You're right. You're not going to know whether these two people live together, and so you shouldn't go up to them and you know, push them apart. You shouldn't be doing that anyways. Uh, but in other situations, I think it is useful. So uh, I remember there's an example, I think it was a Kentucky governor who posted on Twitter or Instagram or something, a picture of him out with his family sort of thumbing his nose at the uh, the virus. And that 
he got the total barrage of, of social media shame for that. And I think that kind of thing is pretty effective. Um, another example, actually, a closer to home example is with this protest that recently happened in Vancouver. Mm. Um, people saying that we, we need to open the government, the government's overreaching, all this kind of stuff. And the, the very first tweet that I saw, the most upvoted tweet was from Seth Rogen, who said, well, for the purpose of this show, you're a darn idiot or something. Yeah, and, he said words and, we probably shouldn't say on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I think that kind of thing is actually very effective as well, because it shows somebody who there's probably respect for among, among uh, a, a younger community, again, reinforcing what the norms of the society are and, sh- and showing approval for the people who follow them and shame for the people who don't. Uh, one other question. Uh, will this change, do you think, the further it goes once we get to the May long weekend, if we're going into the summertime and we're still told stay home, don't go out? Do, does the psychology change? Yeah, so the research on this suggests that, again, going back to how bad we are with risk. So we tend to overreact and underreact. And, and the, the path at which this happens is we tend to overreact to these types of situations to begin with. We panic and then and then we underact, underreact thereafter. So the, the, the risk assumption curve falls faster than the actual risk itself falls. So what you could expect is probably some degree of uh, uh, people becoming less um, um, adhering to, to the uh, protective behaviors. On the other hand, there's also a bunch of legitimate reasons why we should be returning to normalcy as well for not just selfish reasons, but, but uh, important reasons for saving other lives. So, so it's going to be a challenge going forward. I think we're going to have to really deal with some serious trade-offs. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Lots to talk about. The Premier holding a news conference today, extending the state of emergency in this province. Some good news of the 4,700 travellers who returned home after the stricter quarantine rules where you had to prove you had an isolation plan, a self-isolation plan. Only 84 had to be put into hotels, into government to quarantine. So a bit of news coming from the Premier. So that looks like things are going to stay like this. Things are not going to be loosened as far as the new restrictions in place because of COVID-19. What does that mean when it comes to family law? And if you have questions about this in the next half hour, there will be a chance to get those questions both asked and answered because Stuart Zuckerman is joining me now, a lawyer with Zuckerman Law, to talk a little bit more about this. Stuart, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. What are some of the biggest questions you are hearing from people uh, navigating both this uh, pandemic with the increased restrictions and things like custody arrangements and other parts of family law? Uh, well, we're certainly hearing uh, in the news about uh, increased uh, incidents of domestic violence and uh, calls to uh, uh, women's shelters and other things like that, I guess, in times of uh, being uh, constricted to the home there's if there's cracks in a relationship it tends to be magnified and there's that uh, that opportunity for or the potential for for abuse to uh, to increase under those circumstances so i'm certainly hearing that that there are uh, an increase in 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 those kind of concerns going on and then there's also concerns between families that are sharing children um <clears throat> in terms of the parenting schedule and the back and forth between both households when you have this uh, environment of uh, of COVID going on um, and people being concerned about one household having a different 
standard uh, in terms of cleanliness or hygiene uh, versus uh, others. So uh, we do get calls uh, and have gotten calls from people saying, you know, my spouse is not as COVID conscious as my household is. How can I keep the child with me instead of sending the child over to his house, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there have been a couple of court cases, uh, both in Ontario and B.C., um, that have uh, gone before the courts uh, or have attempted to go before the courts. There is currently the courts are closed except for urgent applications. And anybody who wants to bring an application first has to apply for permission to for the application to be heard to show the urgency of it. So there was a case in Ontario where a mother wanted to keep the child, the daughter, with her because the father, the mother claimed, was not um, being COVID conscious about the hygiene issues. Um, and she applied for permission, and uh, on hearing her evidence and some evidence from the father, uh, in by way of affidavits, the court refused to grant the hearing and ordered that the existing parenting schedule continue in place. And generally, that court decision said that existing court orders and existing parenting arrangements with respect to children should continue during the COVID crisis. And then there was a more recent case um, in British Columbia, uh, where the court had faced a very similar uh, situation. Um, and the court reproduced a, a memo uh, that was produced by a, a well-known, well-respected child psychologist in BC named Dr. Michael Elterman. Um, and Dr. Elterman uh, put forward kind of a seven-point summary um, to help courts and lawyers and mediators uh, uh, manage this whole COVID uh, crisis with respect to the sharing of children. Um, and I, I can take you through those seven points if you want to. Yeah, please, I think it would be helpful, minutes. certainly so for the, people. The first, uh, the case that this is cited in is called NJB versus SF, and it's a decision of Justice McQuillan of our provincial court. Um, and he cites Dr. Elterman, uh, the seven points are, the first is that if a parent has had contact with an infected party, they must disclose that immediately to the other parents. That would seem obvious. The problem is, of course, when you have exes, sometimes they don't get along and they tend to not disclose information. So that's important. Point number two is that if, if the parent themselves are infected or even ill with any symptoms or need to be tested, they should not be exercising their parenting time with the child. They should leave the child with the other parent. The third point is if the parent is in a home with older family members or friends or with individuals who are immunocompromised, then the child should not be in that home for the protection of those people. Uh, the fourth point is that there should be no play dates and the child should not be taken to family or social gatherings. Uh, the fifth point is that uh, if parenting time is to occur in a public place, such as a community center or a mall or a restaurant, then it should be suspended. So there are many cases in BC where um, due to often due to family violence and restraining orders uh, against one party, the, the access exchange uh, always takes place in a public mall or at a McDonald's or things like that to avoid the parties having close contact with each other. So he's talking about those kinds of situations. Uh, the sixth point is that if there is a supervisor that is required, um, and that supervisor is not um, who is exercising uh, the access, living in the home, then that parenting time should be suspended. 
And the seventh point is that if either parent or anyone in the household is an essential service worker or is still working with the public, such as a doctor, a nurse, supermarket attendant, pharmacy attendant, flight attendant, etc., then um, there that can be a, an increased risk to the child, and it may be that the child should stay with the other parent. Now, those are all the kind of recommendations and suggestions of Dr. Elterman, and the court referenced them uh, saying that these are all reasonable recommendations and they're consistent um, with recommendations that have been made by public public health officials. Um, and though uh, although public health official guidelines are not technically before the court, the court was able to take those into consideration, um, including things about social distancing, washing of hands, and avoiding a non-essential travel. So the court approved of that uh of those recommendations um but nevertheless in that particular case uh justice mcquillan ordered that the existing parenting time continue because he found that there wasn't sufficient evidence given by the mother to support her suspicions that the father wasn't engaging in appropriate covid precautions and the father for his part gave an affidavit saying i am following covid precautions and here's the things I'm prepared, you know, I'm ensuring that I do and I will continue to assure, ensure that I do that. And the court said as long as there's evidence uh, of the party who's accused saying that they are, they understand the importance of these steps and they're going to take those steps, then, you know, it, judges make every decision on what's called a, uh, you know, a scale of probabilities and weighing the balance. You have to tip the scale more than 51% in favor of one party for a judge to come to a conclusion. So in that particular case, there wasn't sufficient evidence for the judge to come to the conclusion that the child was at risk, and he accepted the father's assurances that he would do what he needed to do to protect the child. We have Stuart Zuckerman on the line, a lawyer at Zuckerman Law, talking about the family law system during this COVID-19 pandemic. And Stuart, just before the break, you were going through uh, what the courts have deemed right now or talked about right now. Uh, I'm curious, and hopefully this wouldn't be an issue, but would there be a stricter punishment if it was found that a parent was trying to use the pandemic uh, to somehow change a custody uh, agreement or was using that kind of false information? Well, there is a provision in the Family Law Act uh, for improper denial um, of uh, parenting time, which can result in a fine of up to $5,000 per incident. Uh, So in the particular case that I referred you to, Justice McQuillan, there was actually a period of denial of access uh, where one parent um, maintained the child and refused to give the child to the other parent despite the order or agreement. And then the court ordered that the parent comply with the order and agreement and provide the access. But the, the court interestingly found that the denial of access was not wrongful because there was uh, a basis for the denial and the for the, a genuine belief um, on the part of, I think it was in that case, on the part of the mother, uh, that the father who had some past incidents with drug addiction and other issues um, uh, had not been complying with uh, the COVID uh, guidelines. So um, it, it, the, because the decision to deny was focused on what was believed to be the best interest of the child, the judge didn't impose a fine and didn't call the denial wrongful. But typically, if somebody did intentionally attempt to withhold a child because of uh, using COVID as an excuse and with no real basis for it, um, that would be that would result in a finding of an improper uh, uh, or wrongful denial, which could result in a fine.
All right. I got this question via text. Uh, This uh, listener writes, I'm supposed to be getting a decision on my custody case next week. With the courts being closed, do you know what the procedure will be for this as it's only a decision? So typically the courts uh, will contact the the lawyers representing the parties or if they're self-represented parties, they will contact the parties themselves directly uh, via telephone or email to let them know when a decision uh, has been released, and those decisions are released uh, via written uh, email decision. So um, the person will get a link uh, or uh, a link to the decision or a phone call. If it was going to be an oral decision where the judge is delivering the reason in the courtroom, uh, they would get a call with a date and a time for the delivery of that decision to come to court. But given that the courts are closed, uh, the likelihood is that that would be delivered uh, via the internet and with a first notification by phone coming from the registry to each party. All right. Uh, What about divorce and separation? Uh, We like to think that everybody will get along, uh, especially if they are self-isolating or spending more time at home. That's not going to be the case. Do you think there's going to be an increase in divorce and separation? That's certainly the, uh, the the prediction that there has been statistics out of uh, Hubei province in China that the, the divorce registry there was apparently overwhelmed uh, in recent weeks um, with the number of divorces. I think the article I read said that there were 300 uh, applications for divorce in a time period in a number of weeks where typically during the year there's only five or something like that. So they had a tremendous uh, increase in divorce applications following uh, the quarantine period or during the quarantine period. And we are uh, getting, uh, as I said earlier, there there have been a, a, a great increase in calls to uh, women's shelters and to uh, family violence and abuse uh, telephone centers. Uh, apparently uh, on the news recently, I saw a story about a great increase in children calling uh, these crisis lines. So, um, you know, if you're in a home with an abusive parent, uh, this, the, the pressure of not having income, the pressure of of being kept in the same house with everybody and not having the normal social outlets that you have, those all increase and uh, the likelihood of abuse increases. So um, my prediction uh, is that unfortunately there probably will be a significant number of uh, an increase in divorce and separations following this. However, the the other side of that is uh, that that, uh, often when we see an economic downturn, we see divorces reduce because if property values drop, if RRSP values drop, a lot of people can't afford to separate and live uh, separate from each other and not share their finances with somebody else. Um, So that may be a countervailing pressure given the drop in the markets, given, I don't know if the real estate market has been affected by COVID in terms of price drops, but those things can have an impact as well. And can people even proceed with divorce hearings or the divorce process given the the lack of businesses that are open? Can it even happen right now? Right. So it can. Um, Legal services and law firms have been deemed to be an essential service in the province of BC. So uh, my firm is open and many firms continue to be open, although my firm, like many, probably uh, have remote, their lawyers doing remote access to their office computers and remote remote uh, consults by Zoom or FaceTime or Skype with, uh, with clients. Um, but the, the court registry, um, even though it's closed physically, remains open electronically. So we can, we can prepare divorce documents, we can file divorce documents, we can prepare applications and file them, although setting dates for the hearing of those applications are likely to be delayed unless they involve something 
very uh, emergent. So we can deal with child protection issues, the necessity for restraining orders, things that are of an urgent nature can still be proceeded with uh, electronically be filed and then and then a hearing set in front of a judge. Shaming and I think people are getting a little bit uh, getting their backs up in some cases you might be doing everything you can to distance yourself to follow the rules that have been put in place uh, by Dr. Bonnie Henry but if you see others and you think they're not following the rules do you get the impulse to take a photo to put that photo on Twitter or other social media platforms and call them out on it even Bonnie Henry has said wait a minute, Don't you don't know what's going on in that scenario. Maybe it's a couple, people who live under the same roof. Uh, in New Westminster, we've talked about this as well, there is a dedicated phone line for this. And Claire Allen, who is a CKNW contributor, is joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. Yes, uh, we've heard many stories about people that have been either shamed themselves or wanting or people who have pointed out people that they believe are not following social distancing rules. And you're right. Dr. Henry has said that we should be, you know, wary of criticizing people or hesitant to criticize people because we don't know about what exactly is going going on in their lives. But despite that, People still want to, quote unquote, maybe snitch on a few people who they believe are not following the rules. So in March, the city of New Westminster set up a dedicated phone line and email for people to report any concerns that they have with others not following the recommended health guidelines during this current pandemic. So Kim Dayton, she is the manager of licensing and integrated services for the city of New Westminster. I asked her why the city of New West decided to set up the COVID-19 compliance line and what kind of calls the line has received. Well, we found that a number of different departments were receiving calls from uh, New Westminster residents with questions and concerns, and they were coming to parks, they were coming to engineering operations, they were coming to bylaws, and it made sense to uh, centralize those complaints into one uh, one area so that a standardized um, uh, response could be given with up-to-date information that was accurate and consistent. So we set up the COVID compliance line, and um, that's what the role is for that line, is to help public uh, with information and any inquiries they have, and also if they want to report uh, concerns they have about uh, lack of safety or lack of physical distancing. Most of the calls are regarding uh, parks and open spaces and people having concerns about what they perceive to be uh, violations of the health orders Uh, what they perceive to be unsafe uh, practices occurring in parks and open spaces. Um, Sometimes there is validity to the complaint um, and folks are gathering, uh, but for the most part we're finding that um, the people that are there are all part of one family unit, perhaps that they all live in the same residence. Uh, We're finding that um, there's some misinformation sometimes, so um, for a while, Dog parks were closed, now they're open. Uh, tennis courts were open, now they're closed. So sometimes people are just a little bit out of step with what's, what's changed. Um, recently, gyms closed, that was yesterday. And um, prior to that, we were getting a lot of complaints about uh, fitness gyms being open, and they were allowed to be open. So sometimes it's just clarifying information for the public. Makes sense. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of this has to do with maybe not having the most up-to-date information. But as you heard, Kim spoke about sort of um, social spaces like parks and, and other places like that. But I wanted to know if they had, the city of New Westminster had received calls from people complaining about people in their homes. And Kim said that, yes, they actually have received calls from people saying that individuals in their private residences are not respecting social distancing measures. Yes, we have received complaints from folks living in multi-unit buildings, uh, resident rental buildings, strata buildings, and uh, it's not within our mandate to um, help in that regard. Uh, that's very much kind of an individual. What how an individual lives in their residence is up to them, and uh, we're not able to uh, to to have any. We have no authority in those situations. All right, that does seem like people are taking it a bit far if they're reporting people inside their private homes. Right, but I could see why, you know, I live in a stratified uh, condo building and, you know, like there are there are public spaces that we all use and I could see why people would be concerned if they thought their neighbor wasn't wasn't abiding by the rules that we are all trying to respect, but but like you heard Kim say there, they have no jurisdiction when it comes to those sort of complaints. So although this COVID-19 compliance line has received a large volume of calls, Jill, none of those calls have resulted in a ticket being issued. We don't have uh, any authority to ticket at this point in time. So it's all about education. It's all about um, helping people to understand what's required and uh, give them suggestions on how they can do it better. But we have no authority at this time to ticket. Uh, Freezer Health inspectors have the ability to ticket in some cases. Um, and if they were to ask the police to assist, they probably would have authority. But at this time, ticketing isn't, uh, isn't something that we're able to do. So all the information about how to contact um, the COVID compliance line is available on uh, New Westminster's website. So if you need any information, you can go there. There's an email address as well that you can send your concerns to if you're a resident and you see something that you don't believe is right or maybe you need clarification on. So all that information is available on their website. Um, but Kim Dayton said that so far, you know, the residents of New Westminster have been doing a great job at trying to adhere to the social distancing measures and trying to, you know, flatten the curve. She wanted to make that very clear that things are going well in that municipality. However, when it comes to the issue of compliance lines or quote unquote snitch lines, as some people call them, civil rights organizations have some concerns. Harsha Walia, she is the executive of the uh, executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, and she says concerns center around the purpose of these lines. The utility of these lines really does depend on what each jurisdiction is deciding to do with them. If these lines are primarily focused on communication and education and in, and a way to mitigate confusion, that's definitely a positive step. If these lines are being used as they are in some jurisdictions in Ontario, for example, as a way to increase policing um, and to particularly target communities who are already over-policed, and this becomes a way of just increasing those policing powers, then that is absolutely not effective, um, and it increases the kind of criminalization and policing of the pandemic that is absolutely ineffective. Um, and we've seen this in previous health crises. You know, if we look at the AIDS crisis, if we look at SARS, et cetera, um, policing those pandemics were absolutely ineffective. Uh, and also resulted in the over-policing of certain communities. So uh, a snitch line that results in increased criminalization and surveillance is a huge concern, um, but that is a distinct objective than a line that might be intended to mitigate confusion through increased education. Hmm. Yes. So 
I wanted to know about how the BC Civil Liberties Association would recommend the government monitor public health and, you know, answer questions about social distancing while ensuring the privacy of their citizens. For Harsha, she says that it all comes down to education and communication. The very first and most effective method that we've seen in Canada and that we've also seen at the international level uh, to flatten the curve is really ones that focus on communication and education. Um, COVID-19 is a, it's a, a new phenomenon. It's, it's very challenging and causes a lot of confusion and panic in people. And oftentimes also the information is rapidly changing, right? Whether we need a mask or not, uh, how much distance is appropriate social distancing, um, whether you need to completely stay in your home or whether you can in fact go out with people that you live with. That information has changed just in a few weeks. And so really the most effective method uh, to flatten the curve is to emphasize communication um, and to ensure that people can meaningfully socially distance. Uh, I believe, and I think all kind of polls have indicated, that people do want to flatten the curve. Uh, people are invested in public health, but in many instances, people simply don't have the means, whether that's because they don't have safe housing um, or they're not able to take time off work, whatever those reasons might be. So the most effective means of flattening the curve and ensuring that we're protecting people's privacy rights is frankly to flatten the inequality uh, that allows some people to socially distance and doesn't allow others to. So uh, very interesting points there. I mean, I think that, you know, the city of New Westminster, their goal is really to educate people. If they call into the line, of course, if there is something that's going on that is in complete violation of the public health order, they're going to have to act. But it also is, you know, answering the purpose of the line is to answer questions and concerns that people have as well. So I think that it is quite effective. Obviously, they've had a lot of calls, um, but uh, I know there are a lot of concerns that if they start ramping up into tickets, that's where people think that it become unfair surveillance and policing of a pandemic. But I'd be curious to hear what you think about Jill about the issue of these lines. Well, it's kind of like the three one one line in Vancouver, and, and we talked about this. Unfortunately, some people were calling nine one one when somebody was jogging by them too close on the seawall and had to be reminded that's not a reason, even in a pandemic, that's not a reason to call nine one one. But even the city of Vancouver encourages call three one one, or you have the app on your phone. You can upload a picture, even if you see some thing that's happening that's maybe going against social distancing. Uh, in Vancouver, they do have the, the ability to ticket. I don't think they are at this point, but uh, I would agree if it's educating and just reminding people that you need to be doing this, then why not? Yeah, and I've, I mean, you're right. I don't think they have handed out any tickets in Vancouver, but they have handed out a ton of warnings to people. So maybe that's enough to get people to, you know, sort of check themselves about how they are, um, in, how, how they are interacting in public and if they are ensuring the public health and safety of everyone. So maybe that's enough. Maybe, you know, maybe you're a fan of these lines and maybe you want to see ticketing step up. But uh, as for now, I think education and communication is, seems to be the goal of those lines.